The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 308. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast, at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do so, and you can purchase one of my courses. They're great courses. You get something good out of it, and you support the show. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Also a great educational website. Everyone's homeschooling right now, so I've given you two websites, McClanahan Academy and Learn True History, where you can homeschool your kids when it comes to history, government, economics. At least the Liberty Classroom has the economics at Learn True History. So you've got all kinds of cool stuff out there to support the show. And of course, always rate this show wherever you get your podcast. You can go to anchor.fm. You can support the show there. Uh, but do please rate it, share it around on social media. Let your friends know about thinking locally and acting locally. Go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the shop tab. You can get your Think Locally, Act Locally stickers or shirts or whatever you want. You can also get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. So lots of great ways to support the show, to spread the message of Think Locally, Act Locally. That is what we're about. That's what we're trying to do. And we can grow this thing together. Now, Let's talk about the topic of the day. First and foremost, I'm going to answer a couple of questions that people have asked me about the stuff behind me or things in my office. Um, it's just easier for me to do it this way because I do get some questions about these things. Number one, my chair. Someone asked me about my chair. What kind of chair do I sit on here? It's a Sealy Posturepedic chair. I got it at Office Depot, I think. Uh, it's a nice chair, but that's what I use. Uh, over my left shoulder, of course, I have two bobbleheads. One of them is John Wilkes Booth. You cannot get that bobblehead anymore. In fact, the reason I got it was because there was such a big controversy about it. The uh, Park Service was selling this, I believe, in their gift shops. And somebody went in, and of course, some do-gooder went in and got all upset about that. You can't sell that in a gift shop. What is wrong with you? You're selling John Wilkes Booth. So uh, I went out and bought one. As soon as I saw the article, I went out and bought one right away because I knew they would be gone, and they were. Within about a week, you couldn't get one anymore. So uh, good luck finding one. Uh, you can probably find one on eBay or somewhere like that for hundreds of dollars, but um, they're, they're gone. And finding one new in a box is going to be almost uh, impossible. So that is John Wilkes Booth. It is not uh, Poe or someone like that. It is Booth. Uh, the other question I've gotten is the painting behind me. You know, what's that? Uh, that is from a friend of mine who I, I went to school with, uh, Abraxas Hudson. Uh, I mean, you can go to his web. I think it's Abraxas Art, A-B-R-A-X-A-S, Abraxas Art. Um, he does really good work, particularly if you're interested in landscape paintings. He is um, a fantastic artist. 
uh, from my hometown. And um, I, I think that um, you would really enjoy his stuff. So he sells prints and all kinds of things. And um, he is a, a really good artist. So those are the things behind me that people have gotten. The fake news hat I picked up at a, at a novelty store in, uh, in Pensacola, Florida. Now, someone asked about that before. Where did I get that hat? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's funny. But those are the things that I've got. You know, that's what's behind me. Um, and so, you know, every now and then I get questions about these items that are in the view of the camera if you're watching it on YouTube. And so there you go. Now, all that said, that's the fun stuff. Let, I mean, all this is fun, but that's the, the trivial stuff, I should say. Let's talk about the topic of the day, which this is a principles episode, right? So, um, I mean, I could, I could talk about COVID-19, but I mean, I think people, again, as I said before, are getting general fatigue about this. Um, it certainly is a problem in American society in a whole, on a whole series of levels, right? Whether it's a health crisis or not, if it is, I mean, the virus is nasty, but where, where does this rank as far as a health crisis? It's an economic crisis, it's a political crisis. We really are facing an unprecedented situation in the United States. And I think that the important thing about that is that it brings us back to principles. What are American principles? Where do they come from? And uh, more importantly, how do we rekindle those principles if we've lost them? And I think this is something that the Romans, and I've, I've done a podcast before, a couple of episodes, I think, on Rome and where that fits. And I, uh, where does Roman history fit within the United States? And I think one of the things that uh, we often get confused about, particularly when you start talking about the founding period, which... I must say that generation of Americans was the greatest generation, not World War II. World War II is nowhere near the greatest generation of Americans. Uh, but the founding generation certainly was the greatest generation of Americans. And look, I've got, I mean, my grandparents, World War II generation, I, I love that generation. I love those people. Um, I mean, they're, they're great. But uh, nowhere near the greatest generation. There certainly was an element of sacrifice in World War II that you could find also in this Republican spirit of the founding generation. But without the founding generation, we're not sitting here today. In fact, my next course at McClanahan Academy is going to focus on the founding generation. So uh, that's going to be coming up within about eight weeks or so at the most. You're going to see that course. So... Um, Start thinking about subscribing. The, the people that do subscribe to McClanahan Academy get the best deals on forthcoming courses. So I will open that class up before anybody else knows about it, and you'll have the best deals. So you're going to want to be on that. And it's going to coincide, of course, with July 4th and um, some other things, some marketing things on my end. But, um, you know, it's been about, it's been 10 years, a little over 10 years since my politically incorrect guide to the founding fathers. So it's kind of been relation to that too. But I want to focus on an essay from Mel Bradford. If you don't know who Mel Bradford is or was, Mel Bradford was a very important um, philosopher. Not, I mean, he wasn't a philosophy professor, but a philosopher uh, in uh, the South in the late 20th century. He died in 1994, far too young. He's from Texas. And Bradford is, in many ways, one of the deans of what's called paleoconservatism, old right American conservatism, particularly uh, in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. 
Bradford, in fact, was passed over for a position in the Reagan administration because a bunch of neoconservatives bristled at his potential appointment and he was his name was withdrawn in favor of Bill Bennett. So in the 1980s, there was a certain split in the conservative movement, quote-unquote, in America, when Bradford was booted from this position, potential position, he would have been he would have been appointed in, in, uh, without, without question. He would have gone through. His nomination would have gone through. Uh, so what was the reason why that these neoconservatives got very upset about Mel Bradford? Because he had written some nasty things about Abraham Lincoln. And you see, you cannot criticize the American demigod at all. You can't. If you're going to be in American political society, he is hands off. You cannot criticize him. Either if you're on the left or the right, Lincoln is, I mean, think about the Obama administration and people were uh, gushing on the left over Obama's cabinet. It was the new team of rivals. Doris Kearns plagiarizer Goodwin. Uh, the new team of rivals was in the Obama administration. We have to, and then you have Trump. Well, I'm, is, is Trump going to be better than Lincoln? Of course, there was a lot of uh, people upset that some Republicans have said that Trump was a better president than Lincoln. Oh my gosh, how can you say that? Trump's not even close to Lincoln. And is Trump's response going to be Lincolnian? Is he going to act like Lincoln in this crisis? I mean, these are all just a bunch of stupidity uh, from, our, uh, from our media and pseudo-intellectuals in America. But um, So Bradford was um, an important figure in this early... 1970s, 80s, 90s, paleoconservatism. I should say, when I say early, uh, you know, you can trace paleoconservatism back before that, but certainly an important part of the American conservative intellectual tradition. And he wrote several great books. And so we're going back to principles here, and I'm going to talk about Mel Bradford. And I know, I mean, look, the people on the left don't like Mel Bradford because they think that. Uh, he is everything evil about American conservatives, which is un it's untrue. But I mean, uh, you know, this guy was from the South. He was uh, someone who uh, was not an egalitarian. Um, okay, good. I mean, we should just say, oh, yeah, okay, good. He's not an egalitarian. We, we should be questioning egalitarianism. When, when people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders uh, bow at the feet of democracy, I mean, this is a problem. Right, I remember when I was in high school, this, my senior year, the, the title of the course for civics was Problems of Democracy. Problems of Democracy. Now, you wouldn't get away with that today with the, uh, with the takeover of American education by radical leftists all, at all levels. There was still some semblance of sanity back in education then. It's not there anymore. That was you know, near three decades ago. But... Um, the problems of democracy. Uh, so, you know, there you go. But uh, let's talk about Mel Bradford in a very important essay in his book, A Better Guide Than Reason. Uh, it's a collection of essays, I think published by Transaction, published the book. Um, but A Better Guide Than Reason. I'm going to focus on three parts of the book, of this essay, I should say, in the book. 
Um, and the, the title of this particular essay is A Teaching for Republicans, Roman History and the Nation's First Identity. Now, what he does in this particular essay is rather interesting. He begins with the discussion of Rome, and we have to understand Rome. And he, he lays out why we have to understand Roman history to better understand American history. You see, there's this conception of the founding that it was all about the Enlightenment. And certainly there was part of it there. I mean, look, there were members of the founding generation who believed in the Enlightenment, who believed, who, who, who absorbed parts of the Enlightenment. I mean, like Jefferson among them. But um, more importantly, you had a reverence for the classics. And I've, you know, Carl Richard has written two very good books on this. Um, the Founders in the Classics is the best. Uh, but um, if you want to go out, just look up Carl Richard, and um, you'll see his, his, two, uh, his two books on the classical influence of the founding period. And I think that's more important than, say, uh, you know, this. It's, it's a soft interpretation of the founding, what's often called the soft interpretation or the country interpretation of the founding. Ideas matter. It's Bernard Balin's kind of his perspective on things, how important ideas were. It's in contrast to, say, the, the, uh, the Beardian School, which was all about economics, a hard understanding of the founding period that was all practical and pragmatic. This was just about money. So you have the ideas versus the finances. And I think that what Forrest McDonald did quite well near the end of his life was synthesize those things. Look, they're both important. These men were ideologically driven in a way, not, not ideology like a communist, but they had four fundamental core principles. And those core principles were based on their understanding of history. More importantly, history is not ideology. And I've, I've talked about that. History is not ideology. These people were not ideologues and that they were thinking of some ideal utopian scheme for American society. It was a practical understanding of history that drove them to accept some of the things they wanted to accept in society. Politics, economics, things like that. A practical understanding of those things. And I think Mel Bradford does a tremendous job in this particular essay in bringing out the practical. It was through an understanding of history and society, but it was based on core, a core, under, it was based on uh, people in place. I'll just say that. Based on people in place. Particularly with men like Patrick Henry, John Adams, and John Dickinson, who, who uh, Bradford focuses on in this particular essay. Uh, he begins the essay uh, thus. He says, quote, The Federal District of Columbia, both in its formal character and as a capital and also in its self-conscious attempt at a certain visual splendor, is, for every visitor from the somewhat sovereign states, a reminder that the analogy of ancient Rome had a formative effect upon those who conceived and designed it as their one strictly national place. First of all, think, think about that. There's so much loaded in that, in that first sentence. From the somewhat sovereign states, and this is something we're wrestling still with today. Are they sovereign states? Are they not in dealing with COVID? They're, they're one strictly national place. One national place. 
Washington, D.C. And I would even say it's not very national, but it was the one federal city. It was the one place that brought them all together. What our fathers called Washington City is thus at one and the same time a symbol of their common political aspirations and a specification of the continuity of those objectives with what they knew of the Roman experience. So we are all informed with the testimony of the eye, however, we can as we are all, so we are all informed with the testimony of the eye, however, we construe the documentary evidence of original confederation. So say the great monuments, the memorials, the many public buildings, and the seat of our government itself. So the statuary place in the very center of the capital of the United States, and much, much more. But Roman architecture and sculpture were not the primary inspiration for Americans' early infatuation with the city on the Tiber. That connection came by way of literature, and particularly from reading and readings in Roman history. What Livy, Tacitus, Plutarch, and their associates taught the generation that achieved our independence was the craft of creating, operating, and preserving a republican form of government. Republican with a lowercase r. For gentlemen of the 18th century, Rome was not the obvious point of reference when the conversation turned to republican theory. So, that's Bradford laying out how important Rome was to the early founding, and he's 100% accurate about this. Uh, he says, The best way to recover Roman history is, as signified to the English Whig or like-minded commonwealthsmen of the late 18th century is to ignore such diverting questions as to what it meant to the Republican historians themselves. Polybus, to Plutarch, the Renaissance, or the leaders of the French Revolution, or what it means to Western man today. The distinction here is akin to the difference between the study of biblical influence and direct exposition of the scripture itself. Our fathers trusted the Roman historians rather well. To them, as to other late Augustans, history was a moral and political study, not a precise antiseptic science. A moral and political study. Not a science. History is a humanity, not a science. Something we have to understand about history, a moral and political study. And especially Roman history. They found the truth of men and manners in its long and varied entity, entirety. Excuse me. This enlightenment did, to be sure, include a disposition, deposition from the life under the Caesars, even though the testimony was chiefly negative in character. But the deepest teachings of the full chronicle was contrasted in it's first three uh, first three parts, and he goes through the three parts of Roman history. Uh, so, I'm going to take a break here for a second, but kind of chew on this while you're thinking about this for a minute or two. What history means and what it is, and how important it was to understand it not as a science but as a humanity and our conception of uh, people in place. It was an understanding, not a prescription. Okay, so let me leave off with that, and we'll pick up with this in just a couple of minutes. I'll see you on the other side of the break. See you then. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen 
college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McLeanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McLeanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 the present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise, but it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about Mel Bradford and Roman history and its influence on the founding of the United States, the founding generation most importantly. And we left off chewing on this idea of what history is and what it means, why it's important. It's a moral and political study, not a science, not an antiseptic, as Bradford said. But to the founding generation, it was so much more. It developed their character. Now, so did certainly their English upbringing, but Bradford makes the point that you cannot separate England, the rights of Englishmen, from Rome. Remember that England itself at one time was... Britannia was a province of Rome. The Roman Empire stretched, in, stretched into Britannia. Arthur, the great uh, king of legend, was a Roman Briton fighting the Germanic hordes that were invading from the north, the Angles and the Saxons. And then, of course, you had this influence of Germania in these, this confluence of the two, the integration of the two, which, of course, comprised... Angoland. So you can't get around the Germanic influence of Rome as well. And of course, when you look at Tacitus, I mean, Tacitus admired the Germans for all the things that were like the old Romans. They were there in the Germans, he believed, not in the decadence of Rome, which had gotten to be awful by the time Tacitus was writing in the first and second centuries AD. So, you have uh, a very interesting perspective on American history here. And what, what was at the core to Bradford for the founding generation was this, and he says it here in this particular part of the essay, was this understanding of what Rome actually meant. And so he, he continues, he says, uh, the best way to understand how the Roman Republic came to be is to consider the place occupied in its development of the 12th, uh, tables of the law in 449 BC. 
This codification made official and permanent the replacement of the ancient kings by a prescriptive constitutional system. For the law of the tables was essentially a codification of existing customs, the funded wisdom of the Roman people, upon which all subsequent additions to the legal order drew for their authority. What he's saying here is that Roman history was continuity. It was respect for ancestral customs. And when you go to the founding period, when you look at people like Patrick Henry, this is what they talked about over and over again. A respect for ancestral customs. A respect for the law. A respect for what made these people who they were. That is the important lesson from Rome to the founding generation. So important to understand that. And he continues about the Roman citizen. He says, said another way, the self-respect of every Roman depended upon his being a Roman. In a fashion which few of us would understand, the self in this system was derivative of the social bond and depended upon a common will to preserve that broad fabric of interconnection intact. A good Roman of the old school had personal pride and considerable sense of honor. His was a shame culture, dominated by intense and personally felt loyalties to family, clan, and individual. Commitment to Rome had its root in and was not separable from the most primary attachments. They tell us what Rome meant and why a true Roman was not an individual as we understand the term. Yet this frame of mind was not so status or secular as such evidence would lead us to believe, for the fabled virtus of her full citizen under the Republic had a ground in what Richard Weaver wisely denominated the older religiousness. Romans honored the manes of their ancestors, the lars and penates of health and roof tree, the, the groves and plains and waters, and the higher gods consulted through official augury, honored them privately and in the service of the state, it's itself always reverent toward the mysterious powers which touch the, li- touch the lives of men. In other words, as he says, they respected and revered the tested ways of society. The will of the fathers was the will of the gods. So this was the patriarchy. And so when we talk about the founding generation as a patriarchy, we look at the will of the fathers. Now, this comes into conflict, as Bradford said, with other things in American society. I I remember years ago, I was quoting some member of the founding generation, and a friend of mine from from, uh, way back a long time ago said, well, you might be able to quote the founders, but uh, what, is, what, did that, what does that mean to today? These people are gone. They had no understanding of, of society, of modern society. And this is, this is the disconnect that we get because supposedly these men meant nothing. I mean, just the 18th century was so different. It was, such another, it was another planet. And so because it was so different, another planet, we shouldn't even pay attention to what these people said. They were, after all, racist, slave owners. Or just racists. And because they were racist, they can't, they can't have anything good to say about anything. And because American society is so different, they didn't understand, they didn't have the internet back then. Why? That just changed everything. They didn't have things that we had. They didn't have automobiles or airplanes or uh, all the other technology that we have today. They didn't have that stuff. So therefore, they were different men. 
And of course, if you understand history, you understand there really, there really isn't a different man in terms of human nature. This is why the founding generation could say that uh, even though they consider themselves, model themselves as different men, they were very modern. They consider themselves modern. All of them did. But they understood human nature was timeless. That they weren't so different from Rome or Greece. They weren't so different from their English ancestors, the ancients. They weren't so different from these people because all of the things, if you look at human society, human society continues in many ways in the same process that it always had. It's cyclical because human nature is unchanging. So we can fight it all we want. And of course, you can uh, shame people into certain positions. But you understand at the end of the day that human nature is what it is. He says, The old Roman of good family had about him a continuous visual reminder of, of the history by which he had been personally defined. Roman history proper began with these family annals and with the Linnean rolls, which recorded by year the names of office holders and a few events. These proprietary figures stood between the Roman and the higher powers, dictated the religious ritual by means by which of which that religion was negotiated. Rome was the prescriptive law, and that law had a sanction in religion. He says, of course, the prescriptive culture of plebeians and of the ordinary free farmers in the countryside was less elaborate than what was found in, found in Pliny or can discover in the glowing pages of other historians. Plutarch, however, in reporting a speech by the noble Tiberius Gracchus, leads us to believe that in the days of Roman glory, the identity with the Antiochus Moss had been supported with these same ties with blood in place throughout every level of class and occupation. It didn't matter if you were a wealthy patrician or if you were a poor plebeian, you still had that attachment to the old. He says, a general distribution of property in the last, in at least 31 of the 35 tribes was a strength-giving backbone of the Roman Republic. For as one scholar has remarked, the original Roman was a farmer-soldier. And his mind reflected his occupation. Roman literature, and especially its normative components, tells us nothing to the contrary. It warns against the corruption of the cities, the urbanite intrusion of foreign values or notions, and praises the advantages, political, or, I'm sorry, practical and spiritual of rural life. I call this mood hard pastoral as opposed to the Akkadian or Dionysian pastoral of the Alexandrian Greeks. Peace, health, and repose are a part of its benison, but not freedom from work or liberation from duty. Not freedom from work, or the liberation of duty. Um, he says, Rome, and, Rome, the city, is thus an arena, but not a seedbed for the original Roman sensibility. As was the case with Sparta, its firmest walls were the breastplates of its soldier citizens, so long as they could be expected to say, with Cato the Younger, in reply, response to appreciation for service, you must think, must thank instead the commonwealth. So, um, he brings this forward to the United States. And he says, look, I mean, this is the issue here. Americans were 
consciously Roman in the founding period. Consciously Roman. Republicans with a lowercase r. He says, but Americans in creating a new republic, a modified Whig Rome, were proving to themselves that by sundering the link with England, they were resisting despotism and arresting the corruption of their fellows. That is, such of their countrymen as were prepared to honor law, the unwritten prescription, and the patria, their lesser homelands, the chartered colonies qua states. Virtus was demonstrated in every assembly or on every battlefield. Personal honor and the unselfish keeping of oaths were both assumed. But responsible liberty was a precondition for all of those elements of character. Liberty restricted by a given identity and channeled by will to cohesion shared by a number of discrete political entities and kinds of people. One person asked me, and I, were, the, were the founding generation libertarians? Not in the modern sense. Not in the modern sense, and I agree with Brad. They were libertarians in that they believed in liberty as attached and anchored by something else, personal responsibility. But there was this belief in the state and the patria in in something there. I mean, the place that they were from was important, Virginia, Massachusetts, and they revered those things. It wasn't just the individual. They weren't individuals. They were part of a greater commonwealth, a greater community. And, uh, I mean, so they were a, a type of libertarian, but it, was an, it wasn't an ideology. It was, rooted in, it was rooted in place and people and an understanding of history, most importantly. He says, but no founding any more than the Roman Republic has been an invention out of a whole cloth. As for confederation, Rome did a lot of that, absorbed to defend itself. Any who accepted its values could reinforce its strength and needed the protection combination could provide. Assuredly, Americans were a rural people in the habit of governing themselves with almost every freeholder potential man-at-arms. Europeans, and especially the English who fought them, marveled at the warlike firmness of these embattled farmers. And soon enough, And soon enough, they came to prefer such of their number as could be recruited to serve in red to the mercenaries George III sent over. Added this general commitment to inherited religion, and the pattern pattern is complete. Once the die was cast among such a people, a community which knew the literature of Rome far better than they did at that of England, it is no marvel that in making the break official, the young boasted that they were treading upon the republican ground of Greece and Rome. Not some English, I'm sorry, not some French Enlightenment. The common American understood Roman and Greek history better than they did the Enlightenment. It was not some glory for a proposition nation. It was to save their hearths and their uh, families from invasion and protect the ancient constitutions which they had known for generations. And again, he gives the examples of Henry Adams and John Dickinson as the, and I'm not going to go through all of that, but I do want to talk about his conclusion. Um, 
He says, what then did Rome mean to the original Americans? What counsel did its early history contain? And what must we conclude about our forefathers from their somewhat selected devotion to the Roman analog? He says, to begin with, insofar as the original national identity derives from a reading of Roman, early Roman history, our first Americans had not seen independence, a sharp departure from the identity they already enjoyed. Rather, both of these developments were, above all else, necessities for the protection of an already established society, necessities like those behind Rome's own republican development. Their respect for their past brought them to their rebellious and finally revolutionary posture, even in whatever they attempted that seemed new, all of which is another way of saying that Rome on these shores, to whatever extent that we may demonstrate its presence, is an indication that American Whiggery is, or was, closer that, to that of Edmund Burke than to the nostrums of Priestley and Fox. There's no relation whatsoever to the virtue preached by Robespierre. Again, no proposition nation. Burke's view of the ancient European orders transplants rather well in a locally structured commonwealth with no nobility and no established church. Indeed, as Burke himself discovered in conflicts with his king, it is perhaps more consonant with a pious, xenophobic republicanism under a specified tradition qua law than with monarchy, a community of interdependent parts, inseparable yet distinct, was the natural consequence of the growth of 13 colonies as separate social, political, and economic units. In other words, we had a federal republic, 13 different states. The war with England had itself given the specific colonies unto themselves a new social maturity and cohesion and to their citizens to, them, to honor an honor of class conflict and interesting strife. Roman history taught us taught that all of this was natural, a commonwealth grown, not made, a definition of, by history not by doctrine or, or loyalty, or I'm sorry, lofty intent, and a general recognition negotiated in the dialectic of experience, that all Americans had together a corporate destiny and would henceforth depend upon each other for their individual liberties. It was grown, not made. It was not ideology, lofty intent, but history. And they all depended on each other for their individual liberties. Confederation for liberty. Roman history allowed for that one near abstraction. But liberty, meaning collective self-determination and dignity under, the, under a piously regarded common law, is a check upon ideology, not a source. For modern regimes, the alternative is the hegemony of an ideal as end, not condition. And the arrangement becomes finally the hegemony of a man, a despotism which makes a noble Noise. Between 1775 and 1787, we discovered no new doctrine. We left that to the English. Self-defense was our business. Courage and discipline were displayed. Also self-sacrifice. All of this composition and more our fathers could recognize in the history of Rome and the laboratory of antiquity were lessons for their not-so-new science of politics seem unmistakably clear. And between us... And those self-evident truths stand the war between the states and other subsequent transformations, plus a legion of historians from the party which triumph in these other revolutions. To penetrate their now accepted obfuscations and to see the elder Rome as did the first American citizens is an appropriate undertaking in these years of official self-examination. Appropriate, painful, and surprising. 
So I love that essay by Bradford. Get a better guide than reason. It's fantastic, and it you get a, you get a full understanding of how we have a new America after 1865, and how the historians have generally created that, both on the right and the left. The proposition nation nonsense is just that nonsense. I mean, Bradford's pointing out there was nothing in that. This is not ideology. This was hard agrarianism. This was people in place. And that's where Rome came in. It was self-sacrifice. Even, I mean, Washington, the greatest among them, was consciously a Roman. Okay, so that's it for this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. Have a good one.